Hello and welcome to Better Under Pressure. I'm Sarah Milne-Rowe, author of The Shed Method and founder of Coaching Impact. And in this podcast, I talk to leaders from all walks of life about being better under pressure and using pressure for better. I want to explore how we handle pressure in a world that is becoming more and more complex, the impact that that pressure has on our ability to perform at our best, and what we do to be better under pressure. I mean, people were crying. Um, I was very worried about some of the team who were in a different time zone to me and I could go and comfort them. They were incredibly upset. They felt that it was their fault, that they were going to be fired, that they were in real trouble. But once I'd made the decision, I'm very rigorous. I'm a real girl guide about these things. I, again, I have to do my, you know, what is it we're really doing? Answer all my questions. Then I have my, okay, this is my rationale. It's very unfortunate that, that this is the trade-off but this is the rationale. And I really remember feeling that moment of utter dread to have to open my mouth and say, I'm pulling the launch and feeling incredible afterwards. Today, I'm talking to Anna Rafferty, Vice President of Digital Consumer Engagement at the Lego Group. She leads their direct engagement with all consumers from preschool children to adult fans of Lego Play. She takes additional special responsibility for digital child safety, rights and well-being. She took that role after having worked as Global Digital Director at BBC Studios, working on franchise brands like BBC Earth, Children's, Doctor Who and Top Gear. Prior to that, she was Director of Product, Content and Creative at Pottermore, following over a decade as MD of Digital at Penguin Books. Anna is also Chair of the Women's Prize for Fiction, a Commissioner for the Digital Futures Commission and sits on the Media, Entertainment and Sports Council for the World Economic Forum. In our conversation, she shares how she backs herself in moments of pressure, the power of procrastination, and why she relates to the song Surface Pressure from the Disney film Encanto. Anna, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation about pressure. Thank you. My pleasure. So, shall we start with the very simple question of when do you remember? feeling pressure for the first time? Gosh, so I was thinking about this and the truth is that I am the eldest daughter of a family of immigrants. And, um, you know, as has been well-documented, not least in the most recent um, Encanto Disney movie in Louisa's Surface Pressure song, um, there's often a lot of expectations on the eldest daughter um, in any family. Um, and then when you add to that, I guess this, um, you know, trope as it may be, but the child of immigrants, you know, wanting to continue to progress and to take all of the chances um, that the parents didn't have offered to them, um, I recognise a lot of that, a huge amount of that in my childhood and in my education and in that, you know, that feeling of being at the forefront of, of, a, of a wave and there being a force behind me of, um, you know, family and ancestors sort of going, go on, go on and, and push forward. Um, and therefore you mm. have to achieve and step up and do things because um, you're not just doing it for yourself, right? You're doing it for all of them as well. Um, but I also remembered a because that's a very big that's a very big book <laughs> that story yeah, I'm sure it is um, yes but something more specific 
that um, when I was kind of reflecting on the question came back to me because I think I'd honestly forgotten about this. Um, mm. But in my first job, first job out of university, so, you know, almost 25 years ago, um, I worked for um, lastminute.com. And at the time, it was a little one-room startup. Um, I joined just as people were starting to hear about it. I joined just as um, the internet, I guess, as a mm. consumer-facing thing that wasn't just academic, um, was starting to become known. Um, and I joined in the auctions department. And what the auctions department did... so. For my family, it was already a quirky thing. I didn't really understand what the internet was um, and what a website was. But then I joined in the bit of last minute, which wasn't the mainstream bit. It wasn't the travel last minute bookings. It was the auctions bit. So it was the odd bit in the corner where we would partner with, I mean, technology products, for instance, or hotels or experiences to create something which felt a bit like you you know money couldn't buy and whether that was a preview of the palm pilot mm. or whether it was um this wonderful experiential weekend and incredible um location and we would auction it so it didn't have a price tag you know people could um decide what they wanted to pay and i remember that i started on the monday into a department of two um and on the thursday my boss left Ah. and she had been planning to leave she just hadn't told me she had another job to go to so I was the only person after four days who knew how the auctions department worked and that meant how the actual website worked so the html of it which I had never studied I had an english degree um or all of the relationships with the suppliers or any of the contracts we had ongoing that were you know, had to be fulfilled in various ways. And um, the founders of the company, so Martha Lane Fox and Brent Hoberman, were wonderful, incredibly busy, but really great, did keep checking in. We were going to recruit a replacement, which I helped to do. Um, but in the meantime, I was left running the department for mm. probably about three months, um, which after a four-day intensive training, period and it was incredible pressure it was sure terrifying it was. um but i realized that it was something i mean that whole experience of working in that dot-com kind of bubble and burst and through mm -hmm. ipo and, and everything was incredibly you know wonderful and a bit of pressure cooker for sure you know a real furnace in which a lot of things were forged in me. Um, and I now realise that that first four-day part mm. just started the experience off as it's meant to go on. Um, and and it was great for me, ultimately, because yes. it was fine. I got through it. People did help. I'm sure that I wasn't as alone as I felt, that there were lots of people keeping an eye on it. Um, and it enabled me to be visible to those founders. Mm. It enabled me to do something important to at least just keep it going um, and then of course end up with a huge amount of knowledge that no one else in the company had to pull everything yeah. together so you know it it set me on a great path I think that's that's fabulous that's such a fabulous start because there's just so many things in that um, I love the word forged you said it forged quite a lot in you and I'm 
I'm really curious to understand how these experiences of pressure in the moment of pressure, does it feel like, oh, yes, things are being forged. I'm going to be so much better as a result of this. You know, how did you, I suppose there's two questions here, Anna. How did your childhood, which you began with, enable you to deal with those four days or not? Is there any relationship with it? It's the first question. The second question is, in the moment of the pressure, does it feel like forging? Or is it in hindsight that it becomes forging? What, what, and it's play in that area for me a bit. Yeah, two great questions. Um, so to the first, you know, I'm not a child psychologist. Um, and so this is my observation and anecdata um, and opinion. But I'm going to say yes, of course, you know, that um, I believe that a lot of my childhood as any child um, it will be true for, you know, created patterns um, that then became my comfort zone um, and that you then go to. And one of those things is banking on myself. So very much, um, you know, if something needs to be done, then who would you rather trust to get it done than yourself? Because I know I'll do it, you know, and I'll I'll do it the way I want it to be done. And I know that that was true in my childhood. And um, and I know it's true now. Um, it's one of these things that, you know, I see in people who work for me. And I think to myself, oh, if you want something done, ask a busy person, because that's that's what I see happening um, again and again. But, you know, I think that idea of just knowing I can... I can deal with it and do it. Um, I suppose it's, it's confidence, isn't it? Um, yeah. But if it's possible, I'm sure I can have a go. Um, so I think that has come very much from from just being used to having responsibility from a really early age. Um, yes. And of course, as a child, responsibility can be even pressure and, and both, you know, those things can be interchangeable. Um, to your second question around, does it feel like forging at the time? <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, it probably does now um, because I'm old and I have more experience of this. But no, at the time, definitely not. It felt frightening. And, you know, um, but I suppose what it didn't ever feel, that experience or many others, it didn't feel like ultimate peril, like peril that I would never get out of. I always knew there'd be an end. Um, Mm -hmm. I always knew, like, what's the worst that can happen at the end of this? Um, And I think that that sense of, you know, which I now realise is, what, maybe a sort of healthy sense of perspective that goes alongside, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that idea of of confidence um, in that, I love what I do and I've been very privileged in my career to be able to choose jobs, for instance, that I believe in, that I think are important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I recognise that's absolutely a privilege. Um, but I also recognise the fact that my jobs are and have been probably pretty high up on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So they're important, but they're not baby brain surgery. You know, if I want to deliver this project yeah. or I want to, you know, code this web page um yep. on an auction website you know what i really want to do that and i believe i can do it if i can't do it i think it's okay you know no puppies are going to die um yep. and and i suppose there's something 
that I've always known that even though I wouldn't have been able to articulate it um as confidently um yeah 25 years ago yeah that sounds really helpful and that that sense of knowing that you can back yourself mm. that's a real gift I think there's there are many people that I work with who don't feel that Anna and you know that how did you grow that how do you grow that confidence that you can back yourself I think it's gold dust personally I think it's absolutely gold dust and you know at what point is that ever tested <laughs> for you I suppose I mean I think I think it is gold dust and I appreciate it I think that there is um, a dangerous side to that which is you know like the risk of creeping into megalomania where you need to have control over everything mm -hmm. um and that would be my dark side um in which you know in moments particularly of pressure um where i would revert to you know what i'm just gonna do it myself yeah. fine i'm just gonna do it um and that is not the right way to do things that's not the right way to um, to scale yourself that's not the right way to lead teams that's not the right way to you know to be able to perform um, on an ongoing basis um, but if you can manage the that <laughs> you know yes. and don't therefore want to to take everything um, I think that you know that idea of again maybe it's connected to perspective um, I back myself because I believe I believe that I'm going to work hard um, I believe that I'm going to be thoughtful um, about what I do. Um, and, you know, and I believe that I have as much chance as anyone else. Um, and, and maybe it's just not possible. And this is, a, you know, this whole thing needs to be rethought and revised. I'm not saying that every, anything is possible. It's not sort of superhero territory. But, you know, I believe that I will do as good a job as anyone. Um, and... And so therefore I may as well try. And then let's let's prove or disprove that. Um, you know, as to where that sense of, you know, I believe I can probably do it as, as good as anyone else. That's a great question. I honestly don't know where where that came from. And I it has to have been my parents. It has to have been my mum, probably, who just had an unending confidence in in my brother and I. I have a wonderful little anecdote which is sort of tangential and you may not want to use it but um, <laughs> when my little brother I hope he doesn't mind me saying this um he was about five or six he just started school and um um my mum went in for her first parents evening for him and the teacher told her the story that the teacher had been observing my brother at lunch times at lunch times all the children had to line up um and you know to, to go in the door and my brother would always walk to the front of the line um and all the other children completely accepted that fine there was never any tension and this teacher was watching it thinking this is so odd why did he always work, walk to the front why doesn't anyone mind and um and so one day she said to him you know you have to wait your turn this is uh, like they were here before you you can't just walk to the front and he turned around and he was so um innocent in in saying this but he turned around and he said but I'm the best and it was because every moment of his life my mother had told him he was the best so yeah. he he totally believed that and yeah. therefore it was okay um and you know 
I think there's probably downsides to that too, but there's something in that real um, sort of feeling like you're on just solid ground yes. and secure and loved and you know yes. yes there's a weight of expectation on you but everyone believes you can do it they're only pushing you forward because they know you can yes um, that of course is talk about forging that you know that that's the forging yeah. I suppose yeah. that's the, the knitting of that character that's um, such a useful example that and just that, that the, the sort of power of what people tell you on a regular basis and, and it can go either way can't it it can dwindle mm-hmm. your sense of your own capability as equal as as doing yeah. you know that fantastic sense of self that your mother gifted to your brother um, yeah and I think about this because I think about my own sons um I have two little boys mm-hmm. and I really want them to believe that they can try anything and they may not want to do something and that's absolutely fine and and of course I believe in talents as well um but but they are just as you know able to have a go um as as sort of anyone else like why wouldn't they try it I really don't want them to feel like oh no I couldn't I can't so um but I don't think I've quite worked out you know quite the right way to do that with them I'm still searching for the right way to land that message with them yes I'm sure the never-ending journey of parenthood Mm. about how Mm. to put things (laughs) so that they're heard in the way that you want them to be heard yeah and then they don't come out years later in a yeah Yeah. Yes. So so I'm hearing that actually everything that you've spoken about so far, Anna, has been hugely helpful in you dealing with huge amounts of pressure that have been flung your way. Uh, And no doubt they go on in different shapes and different forms. Um, how, How do you, though, going from somebody who, um, by her own admittance, can jump in when the pressure is on to just sorting it out because you back yourself so brilliantly. How do you, as in your leadership journey, how have you learned to A, recognize when you do that? And what are the first signs that you recognize, oh, I'm being compelled here to jump mm-hmm. in? And how have you grown it or are you still evolving that leadership to um, allow others to be good and better in pressure? I'm certainly still evolving it. I certainly don't think I'm anywhere near any kind of finished product at all. Um, But I do feel, A, really just through deliberate practice Mm -hmm. of having smart people um, make me aware of when I haven't done this, to now have more of a deliberate punctuation um, and it's an effort. So I use the word deliberate so many times because it's not immediate and natural it's something which I have to remind myself to to take a step back and say what what is the dynamic here actually what do I need to occur what is the right way to do this and I'm very lucky because I I work at the Lego group mm-hmm. and um, got a very strong focus on a good leadership culture I think and core values are incredibly strong which enable a great framework for us to make decisions and and you know to to work with one another as colleagues um but in particular we have this construct called the leadership playground mm-hmm. which is inspired you may have heard of it but it's inspired by um this belief that children are our role models um and so there are core values that we observe in the way that children play particularly in the playground we think are of value in 
all of our leadership journey. And that is leading yourself as a person as well as leading a team or leading a, you know, leading an organization. Um, and they are clustered around this concept of bravery, you know, really kind of feeling the fear and, and doing it anyway because you think it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, curiosity, asking lots of questions, looking at things from a different point of view and um, and taking time to feel like you're getting under the skin of an issue or problem or someone else's perspective and focus and focus is the one that I have found all of our kind of focus on um, at the Lego group to be the most helpful for me because it's not my you know in um my kind of natural life with my family when I'm at my most relaxed um I am fast talking um I'm a rhythmatic thinker I go in all sorts of directions uh, I enjoy that I you know like that a lot um but in moments of crisis and I think working with others and particularly leading with others either in moments of crisis or high pressure particularly when they are feeling that I have found through deliberate practice mm-hmm. that I can pull focus and actually you know there are tools that I rely on that enable me to pull that in to work out okay how should we proceed um, and instead of seeing in front of me a map that has you know 40 different directions which is you know, my usual Saturday um, I'm able to, to see a really clear path um, and that is I think mentioned this idea of having a really good decision making framework and that for me is about knowing what your core values are like what is it you are what is it you're for what do you need to do what is important really being able to understand what's important you know Mm -hmm. for you as a person you as an organization or in this project whatever Mm -hmm. it might be this decision you're about to make you know what is actually important what is the outcome that's important um and then being able to define the sequence to be able to get to that outcome um and in that to create that clear path you know you have to cut away everything extraneous you have to be really focused and um and that is the thing that i think again through you know practicing my intellectual muscles to get there i am now confidently able to do that Um, and i particularly know that i'm good at doing that myself in moments of crisis for myself and with others where i can talk them through and we can ferociously prioritize i talk a lot about ferocious prioritization Mm -hmm. like you can only do one thing and then the next thing and then the next thing so what's the sequence in order to get us to that place so i think that they're they're sort of really important things and i think that I've just been told through years that this was important and I've listened and I believe it is true. Um, and now I have a, you know, a leadership framework in my organization, which really supports it, which is very helpful. Yes. Yes. I hear that. And also I'm so intrigued as to how that has given permission. Cause you said earlier in that conversation, they will tell you, your team will tell you if you are taking control in the way that you say yeah yeah how and how do they do I mean how what have you set up to allow that to happen I like to hear back firstly so you know I think that again let me take my step back 
<laughs> to ferociously prioritize in order to enable that to happen. The number one thing that is essential is to have psychological safety with the team so that they can say that. They can say, actually, I think that's my job <laughs> or I need to do that. Um, now that feels like a, you know, that's two reasonably long words, um, but actually massive implications about how you set up an environment which has genuine psychological safety. Um, and of course, it's not a constant either. That's yeah. something that, you know, you may have after a particularly great period of time um, and it will go again for all sorts of reasons, which could be external, you know. Um, I, I think that lots of people and organisations have found the challenge over lockdowns and pandemics has, has you know, really um, put... The idea of psychological safety within teams under pressure actually yeah. because they're not spending time to one another or they're spending time in sort of screen conversations like this one anna makes a great point that while the last few years during the pandemic have been challenging for teams to truly connect they've also had an impact on psychological safety and the space required for people to confidently speak and share their views i love her phrase deliberate punctuation and we witnessed it play out in this very conversation when she was about to say something and instead paused, leant back in her chair and said, hang on a minute, let me take a step back. Anna described herself as an arrhythmic thinker, capable of going off in many directions, saying how in pressure situations, she can feel the urge to jump in quickly to solve. She's learnt how to create deliberate punctuation for herself so that she can slow down and pull focus towards what really matters and create space for others. When so many of us are communicating virtually, it's very easy for our conversations to become purely transactional. Anna's emphasizing the importance of building a safe space for real connection and honest interaction, particularly vital in moments of pressure. But assuming that you can work on that, and again, that's something that I deliberately work on um, and try and think about, schedule time in my diary to actually consider my team what is the dynamic in the team between me and individuals, between them and themselves, to listen to them, to take moments of pause where collectively as a group, we talk about what do we think? How are we feeling? Um, we actually rate each of our team meetings. My leadership team has um, typically a monthly meeting and we try and have the same set of questions at the end of each meeting. And one of the things we talk about is that, you know that we're open and that we feel like, like we can ask anything we can collaborate and it's anonymous um yeah. and you know that we can take that temperature and kind of go up and down um assuming we do have base level of psychological safety between me and an individual or you know laterally across um then the mechanic is to actually build in a pause of check-in mm -hmm. to say how do we feel about this? Is this is this right? How how are you feeling about this suggestion approach? Um, or if I'm working on my own, to actually build in a pause around thinking about my team and my stakeholders and how do I you know are, are the right people involved? Who will need to know? Am I doing it myself? Yes. <laughs> essentially? Yes. Yes. Um, and again, all of that is you know it's not. Um, it's not instinctive, it is mm. um, planned. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I suppose coming from a base state of having to back yourself 
and getting on with it and knowing that you're trusted to do that. It does take deliberate effort to to put in another sort of pause moment to just check before you jump into that space. Presumably. Yeah, and I think I agree with that. And I it, yes, of course it does. There's also something about the fact that you know if you are achieving and if you you know you're a leader um, of organisations, people, projects. You know, presumably you've got there by delivering things, by doing good work. Um, and it is there's something psychologically hard about mm. realizing, I guess, that idea of you know what got you here yeah. might not get you there. You know that, that that now you need to let that let others do some things which maybe you would have done in the past, and in fact you're enabling them to learn to make mistakes. You know, and that's something that, um, as a, you know, somebody who might otherwise be known as a control freak without taking control of it, um, you know, has to has to just have peace with, and yeah. and that's where, again, if I go back to that sort of framework around what's actually important, you know, once you isolate what's actually important, then look, people might do things in different ways, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, they can do it their own way um and there's a real freedom in that you can be the ghost in your own machine when you set the, yeah. the, the framework up well yeah I think. does pressure ever catch you out Anna? i think less so than it did when i was younger um i i feel pressure physically mm-hmm. so actually Where? my in my eye my eye twitches um and and it's a good tell yes you know it's something that um I used to hate of course um it's involuntary it's a muscle spasm um, <laughs> yeah. and but now I realize it's a real canary in the coal mine you know it will mm. tell me that there's something that I'm not comfortable with and and I probably need to sleep do exercise you know eat differently take something off my plate finish something you know and tick it off whatever it might be um so I think that having that and also being able to therefore connect with my physical body um has been very helpful I mean the other thing that tells me when I'm really under pressure is if I can't sleep yeah Okay. you know um so so a twitchy eye during yeah. the day and, and can't sleep at night and then not shut yeah, them at then, night <laughs> then there's something exactly there's something that needs that needs to change there's something that's wrong and, and needs to change and it rarely gets to that stage now right it's wonderful the body isn't it I, i've never heard of the twitchy eye you hear so many oh, really? sort of similar things like oh yeah stomach churning or you know shaking or going red or you know the, the, but but the twitchy eye what i love about it also is it's involuntary and you know that stuff is involuntary this you can't control the color you go the heat you go the the stomach or the heart palpitation. you know all of these things are out of our control so it's yeah. a brilliant clever trick isn't it the body plays and he just says wake up something's going yeah. on here notice it uh, and do something exactly. with it yeah and I think that the, the power of noticing then you see is yes. then the thing that enables me to um to reverse it or to take control of it or to minimize or you know whatever so true very yeah. Gosh, I think that's such an important point. 
because when we fail to do that or when we witness people in our teams or people who are working or people in our families who fail you're seeing something they're failing mm-hmm. to see and they mm-hmm. they strive on through it that's when it becomes I think much harder to uh, to manage pressure then tips into not being better or positive actually pressure becomes very debilitating and unhealthy actually yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And then you know, people feel like they're trapped, and yeah, uh, and they maybe don't even know why or why they're feeling the way they yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, so how do you when as so what what sort of what do you do when there's a situation where you notice that somebody in your team is feeling pressure? Mm-hmm. It's not something that you particularly feel pressured about, or actually, you might not even have put it in the pressure bucket. How how do you lead people when their pressure threshold is different from yours? So I guess there's two things that I now realize about myself, but that then can be helpful when when leading others. Um, So number one is that I'm very um, oral with an A. So I need to hear things to be able to process them. So, you know, when I feel my own twitchy eye or insomnia, one of the things I will do is talk, talk that sequencing that I said to you through, you know, talk it through, like, what is that I need to do? I'll, I'll say it out loud. I'll say it either to my long-suffering husband or I've actually got a dictation app which I find really helpful I talk to a dictation app and I will say okay this is what I need let's take a step back this is what I need to achieve this is what's really important this is these things are nice to have but less important how am I going to get there okay number one number two number three number four and I will talk it through and then I can listen to myself saying it and then maybe listen to it back and then I can process it so with that knowledge of myself um a lot of you know I will want to offer that service of being the sounding board to my team and they may not wish to take up that offer of course but Mm -hmm. that idea of I just just talk it at me you know I'm just gonna sit here you just talk me through and here here's how I would put some headings like what do you really need what's really important how are you going to get there so again give them a framework and then allow them to talk it through answer questions if they want to that's sort of number one which again I find really helpful number two actually comes out of an anecdote of wonderful woman that I used to work with um, at the Penguin um, Penguin Books Penguin Publishing and she was the general counsel and company Mm -hmm. secretary and she's called Helena Peacock and she has retired now she's absolutely magnificent and so beloved by everybody who worked with her and um, just phenomenal in every way and one of the things that was phenomenal amongst the many qualities that Helena had was her we talk about noticing she was also incredibly aware of her own impact on others Mm -hmm. and I remember seeing it for the first time in a real sort of um, epiphany moment where we were having a difficult conversation with um, a member of a team who was having a really hard time and being very emotional and being unreasonable in, in what they were saying. But it was because it was coming from emotion and everybody mm-hmm. understood. And there was a pause when the person had finished. And Helena said, and it wasn't being facetious or passive aggressive or anything like that at all. She said, now, what did you hope to achieve by saying that? And it really made me think, oh, gosh, Helena has got something she hopes to achieve with everything she says yes. <laughs> and, and and I didn't sometimes just things yeah. just my mouth just opened mm. and things came out um and 
it made me realize that 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 again moment of noticing hearing it talking it through but also then thinking well what do I want to achieve with every action that I'm going to do is a really powerful um thing to a powerful tool if you can get your hands around it and that's another tool that as a gift I would like to offer sometimes to people on my team when you say what do we need to achieve at each of these different stages you know in this presentation you want to give in this pitch you need to win you know what is it that we really need to achieve and so I I guess my style is summed up in quite a coaching style to try and you know be there for them to explore it themselves um but when they need to and if they can't get to answering those questions then I can act as a as a filter yeah to help them say okay here's what I think is really important um, and see if I help but I'd, I'd much rather they they were able to you know they, they were given the space to do that themselves yes and do you share with them the times when you feel the pressure like your twitchy eye or you know the fact that you haven't been able to sleep or that you feel it as well it's a it's a really interesting one I don't have the right answer for this mm-hmm. so you know the short answer is yes I sometimes do um and I never quite know if it's exactly right um I want on the one hand to be the confident um i think the analogy that i was once told was the the air steward so the air steward on the plane you know even at the most crisis ridden kind of bumpiest times it's even more important for them to maintain a very calm facade because not to do so will cause panic um, and make the situation worse so they have to absolutely smile and have poise and not um kind of leak their emotions however much their eye might be twitching. Um, I think there's something very beneficial in that. And I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, when setting direction sometimes for a team, you know, even if it feels scary and and you feel a bit nervous about it, actually they really want to trust that you're very confident and that's all they need to be able to go ahead um, and to do that. Um, At the same time, I think it is authentic and, you know, I keep talking about the fact that it's a deliberate effort for me to, to kind of pause and punctuate and notice um because you know my authentic self is to say i'm feeling worried about this i'm feeling you know here are the here are the three things that are on my mind um and and i want to be open and share that i want to show that vulnerability but i only want to do that if it's helpful so that's the thing you know i don't want to land it on them because they have a lot to think about as well but I do think that there's a way in which we can be a team and we can acknowledge that we're feeling nervous about something yeah. and then move on. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's um, a really interesting concept, that sense of how much do you, it's, it's, it's the authenticity parad- paradox really, isn't it? It's just like, when, when is it okay mm-hmm. to, to reveal? And yeah. actually it's very important you reveal. Mm-hmm. And when is it not helpful or useful for people for you to reveal? And actually, it's your responsibility to, in my words, act as if. Yeah. And I think that comes back to, you know, the what did you hope to achieve by this? Because it's very much, you know, what's the impact you intend to have? Because if this is just me vomiting out uncertainty, um, then I'm not sure how helpful that is for me or anyone it may feel like a purge and yeah, yeah. but actually that's pretty short term 
you know, um, if what it's going to really do is destabilize or, you know, fundamentally worry um, the team who may not have all the context yeah. either. It's a bit yes. like when, you know, children, well, they sound terribly passionate, I don't mean that, but, you know, are you mindful about how you share information because they don't always have all of the context or mm-hmm. um therefore it's completely natural that somebody might jump to a conclusion which isn't right and then that would feel much worse for them so i think it's about really trying to think about the it's empathy isn't it you know yeah. what's the context what's the information that that person has um therefore what's the impact going to be on them if i behave in this way mm-hmm. and it may be positive and it may not be and therefore i need to use judgment yeah it's so refreshing to hear anna say yes i sometimes do share with my team how i'm feeling in moments of pressure but i never really know if it's the right thing to do just listening to that reminds me of moments in my life particularly as a new teacher and definitely as a mother, when I've fallen foul of what I call gut-to-gob moments. Those moments when I wish I'd spent a bit more time considering and choosing what I hoped to achieve before I'd opened my mouth. Whether to be like the air steward, remaining calm and not leaking emotions during bumpy rides that unnerve your passengers, or to show vulnerability and share what's really going on for you, is a dilemma that sits at the heart of many conversations I have. Anna says she wants to show vulnerability, but only if it's helpful. And that's an even tougher call when you're in moments of pressure. Knowing how to choose which reaction is most useful in the moment requires us to have ways to pause so that we can choose the intended impact. And that's the tough bit. That's what I fail to do in my gut to gob moments. I fail to create that moment of choice and ask myself, what's the impact I intend to have? And I suppose it's always a dilemma, isn't it? Because you want them to be able to share as well and part of the deal is if they feel it's safe for you to share then it's safe for them to share too yeah yeah and and that's absolutely true and I think that Mm -hmm. that you know can still entirely happen and this brings us back to the psychological safety right yeah yeah it does there's lots of ways in which you can do that and, and that's part of it um you know being able to to share that you are human and that you have things that are on your mind and you know recently I've my eldest son was going into secondary school and the whole um process where you have to wait to hear what your which child school your child is going to go to is um very nerve-wracking um my team lived it with me <laughs> they absolutely <laughs> lived it with me um and it was but it was something that I hope I didn't burden them with but we, you know but was very human I think for us all yeah to be able it. to bond over yeah so so um what is the worst pressure, do you think, Anna, that you have ever dealt with? I mean, I've dealt with loads of horrible pressurised situations. And, and in a way that I say horrible pressurised situations, you know, it, it, big global brands that have really high standards of excellence, um, really high visibility, um, and therefore often high stakes. Um, yes. You know, high stakes if it goes wrong, uh, partners, complicated deals or products that are being created um often because i've been lucky that in my career often what i have been doing has been you know leading something new innovating Mm. um so there's also not the same paths to follow or rule books to follow and you know we have to do a bit of testing and experimenting that can all be incredibly pressurized um and you know there is I think the worst, the worst moment of pressure I ever felt was 
um, there was a project, a very real project, with one of the biggest brands in the world, which I won't share, but you can probably guess. Um, and um, one of the biggest companies in the world as a partner. Um, and it was due to launch this morning. And on this morning, so it was a it was a digital product. And the thing about digital products is that they're tested and tested and tested. And then they're put into a live environment, into the real environment. And they should behave exactly the way they behaved in all the test environments. And every now and again, one thing will go wrong. And this case, this morning, one thing went wrong. Now, it was one thing, I will give you the context, out of over 600 things. So there was sort of 600 moments that could have gone wrong and they didn't. And one did. So it's pretty small, could be fixed, you know, et cetera. The day it was going to launch, we had the world's press invited for a press launch. Uh, There was a party scheduled that night. Um, Partners were flying in from all over the world. Um, to be at the press launch, to do interviews, to um, you know, go to the party that evening. Um, but I knew that there was a flaw um, in the product. Uh, and soon it would be evident. Again, it wasn't the worst flaw in the world, but it was a flaw. It, wasn't, it didn't hit the standards um, of either of the partners. And I had to make a call. And there was on one side, there was huge amount of pressure, expectation, big day. People have flown in for this. You know, there's so much money riding on this thing today. We've got space booked at the the bar, you know, et cetera. And on the other hand, there's like, this is what I believe are our standards. This is what the expectations are. Um, And again, that moment of, okay, what are the core values here? One of them was around excellence and storytelling. And so I had to... There was no one else who would make the call. It was my call. I could go and get input from people, but it was down to me. And I made the call to pull the launch um, and to pull the launch and you know, pause, fix the thing, um, do it in, instead a week later. And it was, I mean, people were crying. Um, I was very worried about some of the um, the team who were in a different time zone to me and I couldn't go and comfort them. They were incredibly upset. They felt that it was their fault, that they were going to be fired, that they were in real trouble. Um, but once I'd made the decision um, mm. and I'm very rigorous, I'm a real girl guide about these things. I, again, <laughs> I have to do my, you know, what is it we're really doing? Answer all my questions, but then I have it. Then I have my, okay, this is my rationale. I'm really clear on my rationale. I know that all of these things, you know, it's very unfortunate that, that this is the trade-off, but this is the rationale. And I really remember feeling that moment of utter dread to have to open my mouth and say, I'm pulling the launch and feeling incredible afterwards <laughs> because I knew it was the right thing. And, okay. um, and I knew I'd done my homework and yeah. I felt like, you know, I can justify this. Someone can overrule me if they want to. No one did. But yeah. it was the right thing. Um, but that was horrendous. Sounds <laughs> um, it. Like, absolutely yeah. sounds it. But, you know, going back to just the first thing up front, the thing is, all of that, really horrendous. But, you know, everything that I've ever worked on in sort of art and entertainment and play, there's a huge component about being human at the centre of all of those things. Like, that's what yeah. makes them succeed. Um, and therefore... You know, we have to realise that that we're all human, and and that we're going to have these difficult things, and and it's not, you know, it's okay, it's not that big a deal, it's it's not baby brain surgery. 
no which must be incredibly pressurized I so agree with you and it struck me when you said to me once I'd made that tough decision around you know mm. pulling the launch the utter you know not you didn't actually use the re, use the word relief you said how great you felt once you yeah. said it because it is it's that build up to the decision isn't it yeah absolutely it's it's like the, the dark side of anticipation isn't it yeah um, and um and, but you know once through it, I was like you know what it's right it's the right thing to do I yeah. feel you know and, and there's very sort of like okay come at me because yes. I'll stand by this. <laughs> this yes. is the right thing to do. Um, I think that's so helpful. And I don't think you should be worried about it in any way being dictatorial, because I think this is what I think in the in the work that I'm doing, people want to talk about this. Because and, and particularly as you get more senior, you get in your own bubble of and lonely, you know, it's like you're working it out on your own, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, I've already had feedback from some of the you know other ones that people are just so loving the fact that people are talking about this because everyone has different ways of doing it. There's no right, no wrong. It's just what works for you. But what I've really got from this one is, you know, I think people suffer through decision making or find it painful because they haven't done the mm. really deliberate work prior to the decision so that they can absolutely back themselves. And so I'm hearing a few things in there that are clearly very helpful for you, Anna, and it's sort of been, they've been drip fed up in this conversation up to this point, I think. And one of them is the thoroughness of your thinking, your, your, you called it um, rigorous focus, I think, or something, but that mm -hmm. just taking it down to, okay, what can, what can we do? And building your rationale for the decision you're about to make. Plus, I'm hearing a very clear sense of perspective on the decision that you're making. So to mitigate the, um, the immense nature of the decision taking over you in an uh, overwhelming you, this sense of perspective sounds incredibly useful to you. It's yeah. a decision. Yes, it's an important decision, but it's not a life-saving decision. Sounds like that's incredibly useful for you to keep yourself focused on the rationale. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true, and and I find that really helpful. And of course, there are decisions that leaders have to make, which are perhaps smaller in the scope of the business in terms yeah. of commercial impact, but are closer to um, you know life saving. They impact people's lives. They impact mm -hmm. people's jobs. Um, those are the ones mm. actually that I find. Uh, um, that I spend even more time on, of course. And that's where, again, I am incredibly rigorous. I really do exercise that curiosity model um, in that I do ask huge amounts of questions. I do, you know, do all of my homework. I am really clear about why a decision is being made, what the trade-offs are, you know, what the rationale is. I start with an assumption that I don't know all there is to know. So I start with the assumption of, of you know, filling in my own gaps. Um, and therefore, because it's so important, because that decision, you know, which may be changing someone's life is incredibly important. So it's not to, to minimize any of that. Um, and again, to feel the weight of a decision about somebody's life, um, not life or death, but their lifestyle, mm -hmm. um, their daily life, um, you know, the only way I can feel like I'm legitimately allowed to do that is that I have given it the care and attention and deliberate practice that I need to be able to then explain and share it and justify it to them. Yeah. And is there is there anything else in the way you do that that's important? Like, 
I'm thinking is do you go to a particular place to do that is there isn't there an environment that mm. you do this in I mean at because often these things become unconscious in your experts as you become become more expert at them the how you do it becomes almost less conscious so I'm just in terms of unpicking this mm. is there an environment what, what else do you do in those moments I've never really thought about that but now that I reflect on it I think that I <laughs> I absorb myself in after I've done my listening so listen to my own self so done my homework listen to my own self talking it through um, I frequently absorb myself in some kind of creative domestic task so cooking often yeah. you know baking um I, you know, will clear out that cupboard that really needs clearing out or, you know, or something like that, which mm. feels constructive, um, mm -hmm. but is also quite absorbing, often quite physical, um, you know, requires me to just put my brain in a completely different place. Um, I don't think that's ever been a, something that I've deliberately planned, but it's absolutely what I do, you know, and I will go off and I will bake something hard or I'll make a dishroom curry that takes two days uh, or, you know, or something quite intricate um in that way but all the time you know i know i'm processing what i've what i've written and what i've heard and what i've thought about um and then i'll go back to it and i'm sure that there'll be all sorts of different you know not everyone's going to go off and make a curry um and they'll do, they'll do different <laughs> things but but like honestly i find that very that's a very helpful thing to me obviously i also you know get in the bath with a book and stuff but you know it's it's more yeah. useful to me to do something with my hands yeah. than with my head at yeah. that stage yeah um, and, and, and it's got yeah. this resonance to me of em literally embedding interesting the, thought, the thinking I, I, I yeah. think it's got something very tactical about embedding it yeah. doing something from beginning middle to end constructing the thought through another and I am sure the neuroscience would support that it's going off but, but taking the thought through a different sensory factor. Um, yeah, really interesting. And, and I also really believe in procrastination now, which I didn't, you know, talk about. And it used to be something that was so, um, I was so ashamed of it because I'm a desperate procrastinator. Um, but I really believe in, in the power of procrastination now in that actually you're processing, yes. you're thinking about, you're yes. thinking and you're thinking, you're thinking and, you know, and I'm not writing this deck and I should be, and I'm feeling guilty about it, yeah. but I'm thinking about it. And then when I do it, I can do it faster and better. Boom. I, yeah. I think there's a lot in that. I, I agree with you. So Anna, as you know, in this podcast, there's a couple of questions that I ask all yeah. of my guests. If there's somebody listening to this podcast who is on the journey of wanting to be better in pressure situations, what two things would you want to pass forward to them? What's so, the first one? At yeah. the risk of being very repetitive, you're <laughs> right. I have said this already. I think that we all need to know in general, at a macro level, and then specifically that pressurized situation, what is your decision-making framework? What are your core values? What do you hope to achieve? What is important now? Be able to get forensic around those questions to achieve real simplicity and clarity around those things because that will allow you to see where you can cut what is extraneous and how you can find that path forward but I think it is a deliberate practice that you yeah. do have to for me I have to write out the 
questions and I have to answer them for myself and go through them. So that would be number one. You write that and you don't use your audio device for that. I write it and then I read it to myself because okay. I have to hear myself to process it. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is subsequent to really feeling confident about the, you know, the, the, that framework. It's the ferocious prioritization of how you're going to get there. Like the real, and you've really got to be ferocious then. You've really got to say, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to oversee this thing. I'm going to let them do it. It'll be fine. You know, you need to be fierce. And again, for me, I need to consciously decide it, say it, hear it <laughs> to make it real. Um, and then I can, I know I've done that. I have my peace with it. This is my prioritization. This is how I'm going to do it. And then I can sleep. That's very useful to listen to the way you lay that out. And I have a question that comes up as you're talking, Anna, that says, mm -hmm. do you do this for your family life? When you have pressure moments in your family life, is it the same strategy? The thing about my family life is that there's no single accountability. Okay. So um, the closest was the school <laughs> situation that I yeah. referenced earlier. Um, and we did do a, a framework and we did do a prioritization, but I did it with my husband and with my son. So yeah. it is, um, it's, a, it's a different, it's a different beast. But yes. yeah, ultimately, absolutely. You know, what's really important? What do we really want? What do we really need? Um, okay, now how are we gonna do that? And, and do your children come to you with moments of pressure? Not so much yet. I'm expecting more soon. They're mm. still a bit little um, mm -hmm. for that. And um, so we don't, you know, I'm, I'm already thinking that I want to be able to articulate to them and make them feel confident that they are working hard enough. You know, if they know they're working hard enough, they're working hard enough. So there's no point kind of being stressed about it, that, that they can have a go at things, that they can try, that they have that confidence to you know try a new musical instrument or go to something that they haven't done before because the default not always but often is oh I can't I can't I haven't mm -hmm. done it and I you know I want to land that with them um mm -hmm. so I, I think we're still at that mm -hmm. stage of um I'm trying to build them up um and then yes. they'll get into a situation where they'll be under pressure <laughs> yeah yeah yes and hopefully they'll be able to talk about it yeah yeah um yeah I hope so that's great. Anna, thank you so much. Thank you for what listening a fascinating to fascinating conversation. It's um, really I, good. <laughs> um, I hope that's hope helpful for, for someone. And, you know, it feels very didactic. And as I said, you know, a lot of this has been something that I've had to be deliberate about. You know, really, it, it doesn't always feel like your muscle memory is something else. You know, my muscle memory that snaps in is to do it myself. So yes. I've really had to practice this yeah, and yeah. say, you know, this isn't what I want to do. What I want to do is to set the framework and then um, be able to scale it for myself and for others. The reason I set this podcast up is because I fundamentally believe that we can be better through pressure. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, on, I'm wondering, do you believe, do you believe in that statement that we can be better under pressure? Yeah, I believe that every time, I think it's maybe not, always under pressure although actually I feel now confident under pressure I know that I feel I've got the tools to be able to deal with it and to get to the right results um so pressure doesn't frighten me anymore it doesn't scare me I'm not avoiding it 
um, at all. I think that's fine, natural, and I will plan for it actually in my year. And I'll know that there'll be times of pressure coming up and I will try and help my team prepare for these moments of pressure as well at key um, milestones. Um, but what I definitely believe is that we're better after pressure. Um, that once we deal with it and that we and that could be because of the results of what we've managed to decide or achieve or deliver um, or do um, or it could be because of our own self-belief and, and kind of personal learning or both those things and the relationships that you often forge as well under pressure all yes. of those things I think are absolutely positive and um, and therefore I genuinely believe that you're better after pressure. What a great place to stop. Thank you, Anna. Well, I am looking forward with trepidation um, <laughs> to hearing it. I hate my voice. And I, and I know because I hear it all the time. But, um, but I really am. It was very, very enjoyable um, to Good. talk to you. So lovely Good. to see you. And you too, Anna. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Better Under Pressure with me, Sarah Mill Rowe. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and let us know what you found useful or what you'd like to know more about. Our aim is to share as many examples as possible of what people do to manage pressure for better. If you're interested in any of the practices mentioned, check out my book, The Shed Method. Alternatively, you can find us at Coaching Impact or me on LinkedIn and Instagram. Better Under Pressure was produced by the fab team at Smart Cookie Media. Thanks so much for listening and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>